So this week we are continuing to study about the covenant renewal that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 10. Over these past weeks, we have been reading about this journey that the people of Israel took as they sought to rededicate their city. After rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, they, thought to, they sought to rededicate their city to God. And we read that they did that by studying the scripture. And as they studied the scripture, God led them on this journey. God firstly encountered them with his holiness, which led them to be exposed in their sin. And then that led them to a journey of receiving joy in God's good plan, his atoning love and his forgiveness. And then they were led to praxis, which is just a practical response to God's goodness and love. And we've talked about over the weeks how that's our journey as well. As we seek God, as we encounter the scripture, God leads us on this journey and it goes on and on and on from our sin being exposed to being uh, led to joy, to being led to action, to being led to our sin again and joy and action and over and over again. And we've read that this has happened over and over again for Nehemiah's people as well. That as they went through this whole journey in chapter 8, they went back to confession in chapter 9 and then they went to praxis in chapter 10. And their expression of praxis was this covenant. Writing down this document, this very formal document, that every single person who is an Israelite in Jerusalem would sign and say, we will do this under the threat of curses on our people if we don't do it. And when we look at this covenant, how, that we're going to do this over the next few weeks. We're going to look a little bit more deeply into this covenant, of what this covenant says and what it means to us. And as we do that, in the very beginning, we see that there is a problem that the people understood when they read the scripture. And the problem was that they were not distinct anymore. That they were no longer counter-cultural. They had just become cultural. Over the centuries, and we see this throughout the Old Testament, that the people of God who were called through Abraham and, and Moses, they were called to be a distinct people. They were called to be a people who showed who they were and whose they were. They showed that they were God's people by their practices, by what they did, and they showed that they belonged to God. And they also had a witness of God's character and love through their practices. But we see that as they were reading uh, the scriptures back in the people of Jerusalem, they realized they had lost this. Matthew in our passage talks about this. He says that if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that really applies to what was happening with the, God's people at that time. They had lost their distinctiveness. You know, if salt loses its saltiness, it doesn't have any purpose. It doesn't fulfill any need. And if God's people lose their, their God, they also lose their purpose. They lose their uniqueness as well. And so they were drawn back to God through this covenant, by saying we're going to be God's unique people again. And this is important for us as Christians as well, because Jesus was speaking about salt and light to his followers. 
He's saying, you who follow me are the salt and light of the world. So that means you. In this room, if you follow Jesus, you are salt and light. And notice that he doesn't say, you might be salt and light if you do good enough. You could be salt and life if you just got it together. If you just knew the Bible enough, then you will be salt and light. But you are salt and light. You being salt is God's gift to you. Peter describes it that you are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, not may, not could, not will, but are. That is who you are. That is who I am. It is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. And it's an amazing, wonderful gift But also, Jesus warns us that we, like the Israelites, can lose our distinctiveness. We can become just like the culture around us. To have nothing extra to share with people around us about who God is. That our God can be made small. And our belief in God can get all mixed up and jumbled up in our lives. And we see through the covenant that Nehemiah, uh, the people of Nehemiah made with God... In Nehemiah, that they wanted to counter this by specific practices. They wanted to say through their actions that they would not follow other gods. And that really is our challenge as well. Through our actions to say we will follow the one true God. So over the few, next few weeks, we're going to look at specific practices in this covenant that called the people of God to be a distinct and even countercultural people. And we're going to look at what that means for us as well. And today we're specifically going to look at the deeper problem. Because there's this deeper issue that is happening here that is causing the people to do other things. And it's encapsulated in verse 30. In verse 30, which is the first article of the command, it says this. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. And when we first read this as modern people, you know, we don't live in tribes, tribal societies uh, in the midst of a rural farming communities anymore. This could seem kind of like doesn't fit with us anymore. Back then, the, there were very clear rules about who married who. But, you know, today, a lot of those rules are gone and we're glad they're gone because in the past they were racist or prejudiced or, you know, they seemed odd and didn't fit with us today. But they showed the bigger problem, and this shows really what the bigger problem, not just for the Israelites, but for us is as well. And it's not just racism in marriage practices, but the problem is really syncretism. Syncretism might be a new word for some of you, but it just means the combining and blending of many beliefs and practices, or the merging of different beliefs into other types of belief that are distinct from others. And this is what happened in the life of the people of Israel. They just merged and blended their faith, the faith in Yahweh, with other faiths and things until it just kind of lost its saltiness. Their message and their belief lost any distinctiveness. And this is not something that happened right away. It happened throughout their history. Now we can see in the very beginning of the people of, uh, of God that they were actually polytheists. So they believed in many gods. They, they, they had many idols. 
But they were called by God to be kind of one, worship one God and one God alone. And we see kind of their struggles with that through Genesis and, and even Exodus at times. The people of God were called by Moses out of captivity. And they were given the Ten Commandments by God. But, but when they were given that, those Ten Commandments and Moses was up on Mount Horeb, they built this golden calf to worship in place of God. So there was always this tendency. And it started with good intentions. The people of Israel would be, you know, have a bad year in their crops. And they would look at other tribes and they had great yields with their crops. And they'd go, huh, maybe I should worship their God. So they added an idol to the commandments. And then again, it might happen that they go, wow, everybody else is so much more prosperous than, than us. We should worship their God. So then they add a few more idols to their belief. It's not like they've given up their belief in Yahweh. They just added to it. And then again, maybe an enemy was confronting them and they thought, man, we are not strong. Our God is not helping us to defeat these enemies. So maybe we got to get more. We got to worship some other stronger gods. You know, it's better to have more gods, more help. So they add more. And little by little, this happened over and over again. They started adding over and over more gods and more gods and other ways of living and other ways of seeing the world until their faith was obscured. What was unique about them was gone. The Ten Commandments is what was unique about them, but they, they, they didn't have that anymore. They just had this melding, this other thing, this other religion that was not anything. And it made them into nothing. They believed nothing unique. They believed everything that everybody else believed. And they had lost their saltiness, their uniqueness. So when the people of Nehemiah's time came back and they mourned over their sin and they realized, man, we have missed our uniqueness. We have lost who we are. They decided just to break these down, to destroy them, to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> They wanted to have purity in the uniqueness of their God and their faith. And we live in syncretistic times too. Even though we live in very different times, extremely different times than our ancient ancestors here, we also live in the midst of syncretism. I mean, you would not have hot dogs if not for syncretism or pizza. You wouldn't have jazz music or hip hop or rock and roll. All of that comes from syncretism, a blending of ideas, a blending of cultures that made new things. So syncretism is not necessarily a bad thing, but there are types of syncretism that can be harmful for our faith. And these are types of syncretism that we often don't even realize that we are participating in. I've kind of uh, thought about six of them to show you. The first one is a syncretism of religion. And this is the most obvious one. That, you know, there are many other religions and we can easily kind of start picking and choosing. I mean, many world religions are syncretistic. I mean, Islam is a mix of Judaism and Christianity and also kind of the, the type of religious movement that was happening back then. I mean, even thinking about Jehovah Witnesses and thinking about Mormonism, they're all kind of syncretistic. They're blending certain things to make something else. 
And we can do that in very subtle ways. You know, we, I, I know many Christians who have little Buddhas that they got from Ikea in their garden. So you do that and you're adding something. You may not realize, but you're adding another belief. You know, there are Christians that believe in the Bible and also their horoscope. They believe in heaven and also reincarnation. So that adds another belief. You know, even, I mean, even though yoga in a lot of ways is very innocent, there's a theological underpinning to yoga. And when you kind of get involved in that as well, it can add another belief. So all of a sudden you're mixing beliefs. And this doesn't just happen with religion, this happens with culture as well. You know, we all have, have some cultural beliefs that we carry. And when we start to believe in those things, they actually can be in conflict with the God we believe in. So for example, let's think about like luck. You know, um, Bible-believing Christians can believe in the Bible, everything the Bible says, but also believe that certain days of the month are more lucky than others. Or certain times of the year are more lucky, so you have to do certain things to get the luck of those times. And that is not a biblical concept at all. So again, we add. And we believe in the new covenant. So we believe in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. But already there can be a mixing of these things. And we can do this with ideas as well. There can be ideas that we have about ourselves, about others, about the world. That we have that even though we believe in Jesus, we believe in God, we, you know, we, we affirm the Bible, they still contradict. You know, racism is an idea like that. Believe in Jesus, but still believe some people are better than others. Beliefs about ourselves, like I am not good enough, I'm a terrible person, that goes in conflict with the Bible. Believing that someone else is beyond redemption, that someone else is terrible, also goes contradiction, contra- it contradicts the Bible. So then, again, we begin to add other things. Political beliefs, other beliefs, there can be contradictions. Same thing with like thinking about success, performance, modern culture. The more we say, I need Jesus, but I also need that job promotion to be successful, to be really feel fulfilled, to feel like I am good enough, to feel like I'm worthy. I just need Jesus, but I also need, you know, extra, that extra paycheck. I need, I need this. I need that. When we add those things, again, it just starts adding to our beliefs. And we can do that also with, with other things or people. I just need that relationship. If I just have that relationship, then, then I'm going to feel like I made it. Then everything will be okay. If I just get that thing, that thing that I've been hoping for, then I will be, then finally I will feel fulfilled. Again, adding to our beliefs. Adding more beliefs. And lastly, we do it with works righteousness. Believing that I need to somehow please God, that I need to, that I will not be able to be blessed unless I do enough or act in the right way or, or do these things, God will not bless me. That is kind of a mix of, you know, everything from the American dream to kind of positive theology to kind of, you know, your parents telling you to do good and, and do enough to Old Testament religion. 
Remember, we talked about last week that the old covenant that Jesus fulfilled states through the law, follow, obey, and be blessed. Don't follow and obey and be cursed. And Jesus fulfilled that covenant. He fully obeyed the law. He was fully obedient to God. And so he fulfilled that for us. So now the new covenant is obey and you'll be blessed. I mean, sorry, that's the old covenant. Be blessed and you will obey. You, and then obey. So you are blessed by Jesus Christ. Obey. Out of the blessing, obey. But if we do the opposite and say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little old covenant religion, we're, we're muddling the gospel. We're muddling what is true. We're muddling Christ's sacrifice, and we are actually creating another gospel, another good news, in place of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that can happen easily in our lives. We can do this without even realizing it. We just co-opt the things that we hear. We just add the things that people have told us. But eventually, they muddle the uniqueness of the gospel. The unique gospel that we have, that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, that he is the King of the universe, God's precious and unique Son sent to save the world. Through his atoning sacrifice, we lose it. It's gone. And it's just kind of melded in with all the other things. And so when we realize that, when we see that we have co-opted these other beliefs and they muddle the gospel, our uniqueness of our message that Jesus Christ is Lord is gone, we're also called to repent. And repenting also means just saying, no, I will not follow these things anymore. I will not believe them. I will make Jesus Christ the Lord again. And when the people of Israel did this, it required radical changes. And we can see this in our passage. It required a radical change in what they were doing because always belief is connected to action. Like I said earlier, we can believe something, but if we don't act upon it, we won't change. So if we want to have a lifestyle that honors the unique uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, our actions are going to need to change to reflect the gospel that we believe. And this is what happened with the people of uh, Jerusalem at that time. They realized some things need to change. And the first thing that needed to change then for them had to do with relationships. Like we just read before, we promise to not give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, in the ancient world, this was actually something that was fairly common. In an ancient wedding, both uh, people coming into the relationship would bring their gods to the marriage um, ceremony. So if one person worshipped three or four gods, they would bring them to the altar and they would put them here, just like this. And then the other person would bring their gods and they would put them in the altar as well. And they would all put them together. 
and they would make covenants to their gods when they got married. And this is actually very similar to what we do in a Christian marriage. Patrick and Amber, who are here with us today, they got married yesterday. And even though they didn't get married in a church, they got married making a covenant with their God. They believe in the same God, Jesus Christ. So when they got married, they made a threefold covenant. One between uh, each other, so a twofold was between them, and then the third fold that was with God. And so that was a very significant thing for them, an important thing for them, that they made their vows in the sight of God. And that's what happened in the ancient world. They would bring their, their gods together, and they would make covenant before them, saying, we will uh, be faithful to each other, and you will help us, gods. And then they would take their gods home to their house, and put them together as part of their worship. So they, start, they would start with just their own gods, but then their gods came together as one in their marriage relationship. And so here, that's what we see the, the reason for this commandment is. That there was this melding of gods that happened in the most intimate of relationship, and God wants always for him and his witness to be unique. The people of God made a covenant with God saying that they would honor the unique God, Yahweh. So they couldn't do this. And a sign of doing this was a sign of disobedience. It was a sign that they were not following God because they were intermarrying with people who did not believe in God. So it cluttered their message. It cluttered their witness. Remember, the people of God had a tremendous message. From the very beginning, from, from Abraham, they had this amazing message. Out of everyone in the whole world, one people knew God's will. One people knew God's character. One people knew what it meant to be in relationship with God, and it was the Jewish people. They're the one, they carried this message. And so God didn't want their message to be cluttered. He didn't want their message to be filled with other messages. And the reason why is because as they handed on this message, generation to generation, one after the other, eventually that message found its way to the household of a new couple, one who was uh, born, she had a child out of wedlock, another who was an older man who was faithful, and their special child who you know, was a scandal in their neighborhood because that child, they said, was born of the Holy Spirit. That child grew up with the uncompromised and uncluttered message that they had been carrying for generations and generations for thousands of years, and he learned it, and he received it, and he expanded it, and he carried it out to the world. That was their purpose. Those people in Nehemiah's time didn't realize their purpose. But they had a purpose that was larger than, than themselves. And that's the same thing that's true of us. If you believe in Jesus Christ, even with the most feeblest of faith, even just quietly going, oh, yes, you have been given this purpose that is bigger than yourself to carry this message, the most amazing message in the world, that Jesus Christ, God's only son, has come to save sinners, to save us through his death and resurrection and give us new life in him. That is your message. And so God, with us as well, does not want our message to be cluttered, 
by other messages. And one of the main ways that our, relation, that our message can be cluttered is through relationships. Paul actually, um, he also talks about this as well. He says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has, right, has righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, I must admit that this is a bit of a notorious message in the Christian world. It's been used to give guilt trips to people dating non-Christians. It's been used as a huge source of shame for people who are struggling and want to date but aren't finding people who are of quality character around them and just wanting to find people. So this is, can be a source of shame. It also can be kind of a source of exclusion. It has led Christians to say, well... Can't be around non-Christians. Can't hang around with them. Can't be unequally yoked, people. But that's not what this is saying. Again, this is using farming language, and we're not farmers, so we don't always get this right away. But a yoke, as we've talked about many times before, if you've been with us, is that piece of wood between two oxen. And it's put there so that two oxen will work together. That they'll work in unity, they'll be stronger than the one, that they can do more together and, and kind of do uh, more uh, heavy things than just one oxen. And if one oxen is kind of sickly or smaller than the other oxen, they'll be unequally yoked, they'll be imbalanced. And then they won't be able to do the work together. It'll actually make it harder for each of them to do the work together than easier. And if one oxen wants to go this way and one oxen wants to go that way, then also they're unequally yoked because they don't have the same purpose. They don't have the same direction they're going. And that is just a challenge, I think, for all of us who hold Christ as our Lord and Savior. And again, this doesn't mean you can't have non-Christian friends. It just means that we also have to have friends that are going in the same direction as us. If we only have people who are yoked in a different way or to other values or other ways of life, then we will not be able, only if we have those as our friends, we're not going to be able to go forward in strength in Christ. We're still called to have those friends and have them in abundance. We can be yoked in different ways with them. You know, in our, in our jobs, we can be yoked to the same purpose. You know, we can be yoked to other ways and directions with them. But we're also called to have people we are yoked together in Christ with. That we can be encouraged by. That we can pray for each other. That we can help each other along the way of following Christ, which is not easy. We need each other. That's one of the reasons why we come here every Sunday. I give many reasons as I'm preaching about why we come here on every Sunday. But one of the reasons is why we need each other. We need people we're yoked with, going in the same direction with, to encourage us. When we see others worshiping, we're encouraged. When we see other people standing on their faith, we're encouraged. Just like I read our deacon and elder candidates and, and kind of expressions of their faith, it's encouraging that they are receiving uh, God's love and care in their life, that they are committed to following God. It's encouraging. We need to hear that from each other. We need to encourage each other in those ways. That's one of the reasons why we come here on Sundays is to be yoked together with other believers. But also Paul and Nehemiah connect this with the most intimate relationship, and that's marriage. And again, this brings up a lot of kind of guilt and shame in marriages. Because there are many Christians yoked with unbelievers. 
I have many friends who are Christians yoked with unbelievers. And again, like I was talking about dating, it's hard to date in the city. It is hard to find people of quality character, and sometimes it's hard to find even Christians of quality character to date. I struggled with that throughout my dating life. My wife struggled with that, living in the city and trying to date. And it's true, I know, for all of the half of our church that are single right now. But even in the midst of that, whether we're married and kind of not equally yoked with the person that we're married with, or we are dating and trying to figure out what that means for us, the challenge and also the joy is that we are a missionary people, that we have this unique message. So for those married to someone who is not of the same faith, they are called to just continue to be yoked with other people in their lives who have faith, to be an example of strong faith to their family, to show grace and mercy to their spouses daily, to strive to live like Christ and love like Christ in their families. And for us who are single or dating, our challenge is to find people that share the same values as us, who are on the same direction with us. And that will be a harder journey than just dating anyone. But our challenge is always to just be a unique people. You are a people who have a message to share. You are a missionary people. And even in a marriage where you both share the same belief, you also could have moments of not being equally yoked. Either one or both of you could just not be interested in growing in your faith and love and things like that. And when that happens, you're called to encourage each other in faith, to show grace and show love, and to continue to strive to walk with each other and bless each other to be a kingdom example in faith. As we just talked about, syncretism is... One of these things we don't often think about, but it happens to us all the time. So I encourage you to receive the grace and goodness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to receive his love, to remember what he's done for you, and then to seek other people that love Jesus Christ. You know, the thing about being yoked to someone else is it's not an always an easy journey. If you see oxen working, which I've only seen a couple times in this kind of yoked situation, they're doing hard work. They're straining their muscles. They are, they are lifting heavy loads. And even being yoked together is going to be a hard thing for us. It's hard to be together in Christ. It is hard to love one another. It is easy to just say, I'm done with you. We hurt each other like we've talked about over and over again. We are a community of broken people. And our brokenness sometimes just spills out on each other through an insensitivity, through lack of listening, for lack of care, for lack of support, for lack of love, for lack of understanding. But being yoked to Christ means we are going to stumble along on that same purpose. To know Christ, to be known by Christ, and to make him known. So I encourage you to be blessed by the unique message you have to share. And to try to keep that message pure. When you come back and, and remember that you have muddled your message with other messages, come back to the gospel. Receive joy in the goodness of God's love and grace that has been revealed to you through Jesus Christ. And again, be yoked to Christ. And be yoked to each other. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord God, we thank you that you have given us the most amazing message in the world. 
the message of your gospel, the message of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we understand that often other messages have sunk into our message and your message, and they muddled it. Lord, they, we, they have obscured the light of your son, Jesus Christ. Yet, Lord, we are amazed and humbled and awed that in the midst of that, in the midst of our inability at times to show your love and light, that you still say you are salt and light. You still say you are a royal priesthood. You still say you are a chosen people. You still say we are called out of darkness and into the light. Lord, we have this just amazing blessing to know that we are called these things even though we are not always faithful, faithful to these things. We are awed and humbled by the blessing, Lord God. We ask, Lord, just for your guidance and the wisdom of your Holy Spirit that we could not clutter your gospel and also be a witness through our life and through our work of who you are until you come again. We thank you, Lord God. In your son's name we pray. Amen.